This morning, the obvious theme of our service is Isaiah 53. We're reading and singing from this chapter of Scripture. And Isaiah 53 contains some well-known phrases. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But Isaiah 53 begins with these words. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is actually the theme of this chapter, you know. Isaiah 53. And yet that particular phrase may not be nearly as familiar to us as verse 6 about going astray like sheep and the Lord laying our iniquity on His servant. Let's consider the arm of the Lord as we come to study Isaiah 53. What does the arm of the Lord mean? What does it represent? What's being conveyed as we think about the arm of the Lord? As the prophet uses the phrase, the arm of the Lord. Well, if I may summarize, the arm of the Lord in Scripture is God's strongest power to save at work for His people. If you look back to Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6, God's people are in bondage. But God speaks with Moses. And he says that Moses should say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. What you see unfolding in the following chapters is an escalation. In Exodus chapter 7, the plagues begin. Most of us are familiar enough with Old Testament history to remember the plagues that God sent upon Egypt. You may recall that the first two plagues were copied by the magicians in Pharaoh's court. But the third one, the third one, they could not replicate. We read in Exodus 8 and verse 18, The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is... The finger of God. Then you see over in Exodus chapter 9. God says to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold the hand of the Lord 
will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. What you see happening in even the Exodus narrative is that God escalates. First we read about the finger of God. And then we read about the hand of the Lord. And then God does as He promised way back in Exodus chapter 6. And He redeems His people with an outstretched arm. In Exodus, the arm of the Lord is God's ultimate power to save at work for His people. Likewise, in Isaiah, God's arm is His power to save. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 30, where we read this in verse 30. The Lord will cause His majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of His arm to be seen. In furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. Who's this against? The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord. And so on it goes. And then verse 32. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Who's tambourines and lyres? The people of God's. As God battles, it says here in verse 32, with brandished arm, He will fight with them. Isaiah 33 and verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for You. Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in the time of trouble. In other words, we don't have the arm to save ourselves, so be, O God, our arm. Isaiah 40 and verse 10. Behold, the Lord comes with His might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms and He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The Lord comes with His arm ruling for Him when it is that it's time to gather up His lambs. Salvation. Isaiah 48, verse 14. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. 51, and verse 5. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. 51 and verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. And then we come to chapter 52, which is the immediate context of our chapter, verse 53. And we read this prophecy. 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. There's this expectation of God bearing His holy arm and working salvation for the ends of the earth. There's this expectation of the proclamation of good news. And immediately after this comes our passage. 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Immediately God speaks of his servant. After speaking about the proclamation of good news and the arm of the Lord being bared for the salvation of the ends of the earth, immediately he speaks of his servant. And attention is raised between the servant being high and lifted up, being exalted, and being marred beyond human semblance. This discussion of God's arm and God's servant continues into chapter 53. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. In 53, the prophet refers to the arm of the Lord as a person. His servant introduced to us at the end of 52. This one spoken of in Isaiah 53 is the arm of the Lord. And this same tension that was there at the end of 52, he's high and lifted up, he's exalted, and yet he's also marred beyond human semblance. This same tension is present to us in chapter 53. For this is... Of course, the servant who's going to bring to fulfillment all of God's promises of salvation. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one through whom, about whom, good news will be published to the ends of the earth. And yet, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He is God's power to save And yet he is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is as one from whom men hide their faces. This tension is present because God's power to save looks like a suffering servant. 
And many can't wrap their heads around that. How could God's power to save be a suffering servant? Shouldn't God's power to save be a mighty king marching with a large army? Riding in a chariot behind fast and strong war horses? Well, if what God is doing is saving you from political oppression, then yes, I suppose that is what God's arm would look like. Shouldn't God's arm, God's power to save, look like sun shining down on the land, warming the soil, and rain to nourish the crops, so that there would be abundance? Shouldn't God's arms be pushing a wheelbarrow of money, so to speak? Well, yes, I suppose so, if what God is saving you from is material poverty. Shouldn't God's arm be patting you on the back? Well, yes, I suppose, if what God's saving you from is low self-esteem. Shouldn't God's arm be carrying a pillow of easy circumstances on which you can rest your head? Well, I suppose so. If what God's saving you from is discomfort. But because God's arm does none of these things, because God's arm doesn't save perhaps in the way that we might want Him to, or expect Him to, because we might have the wrong categories of what God's arm will do when it is bared, if we have wrong categories of what salvation is and what we're being saved from, then we'll be surprised by a suffering servant and we will despise and reject a suffering servant. We will find no form or majesty, no beauty in one who doesn't save the way we want Him to, the way we expect Him to. If our categories are wrong, God's arm will be to us as one from whom we hide our faces. And isn't that the case as we look around us? Isn't Christ Jesus without beauty in the eyes of so many? Isn't Christ Jesus despised and rejected by so many? To so many, Jesus has no form or majesty that they should look at Him. And yet to us, to us, Christians, oh, there is beauty in Jesus that we should desire Him. There's form and majesty that we should look at Him.
to us. He's no longer one from whom we hide our faces, but one whom we desire to gaze upon with the eyes of our hearts over and again. For we have understood that the gospel, the good news that is proclaimed and published in Isaiah 52 and verse 7 isn't salvation from political oppression. Isn't salvation from material poverty. Isn't salvation from low self-esteem. Isn't salvation from discomfort. But salvation from sin. And we see, based on Isaiah 53 and other passages throughout Scripture, that Jesus, in fact, has saved us from this sin that we needed deliverance from. The arm of the Lord has been bared. And now salvation has been proclaimed and published. The servant of the Lord has suffered. Look, verse 4, he has borne grief. Verse 4, he has carried sorrow. He has been stricken. He has been smitten by God and afflicted. He has been pierced, crushed, chastised. Verse 5. That's not good news in and of itself. But it's good news because of its outcome. You see, it's implied in this passage that the servant of God didn't deserve to suffer. Look at the words of the text. Whose griefs did he bear? Ours. Whose sorrows did he carry? Ours. Whose transgressions was he pierced for? Ours. For whose iniquities was he crushed? Ours. You see, he did not deserve to suffer. The language of the passage tells us that. But the imagery of the lamb also implies it. Verse 7. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This suffering servant is compared to a lamb. And if you're familiar with early portions of Scripture, you understand the function of a lamb. To die in the place of the guilty. We did deserve to suffer. And our suffering was not to be just a consequence, a natural consequence like touching a burner on a hot stove. Nobody is doing that to you. It's just a natural consequence. Our suffering that was to come as a result of sin was not merely a natural consequence. It was a judicial punishment a judicial sentence from God 
by God, which was to be poured out upon us. Look at the language of this passage. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. How did He bear our griefs and carry our sorrows? By slipping His hand between ours on the hot stove? So that the natural consequence that we would have had if we had touched it would go to Him? He was stricken, smitten by God. And afflicted. He was pierced. Well, someone had to do the piercing. Crushed. Someone had to do the crushing for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. Now we're very clearly out of the language of natural consequence. Chastisement is the language of one person chastising another, one party chastising another. And with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6 tells us exactly how it is that He bore our griefs. How it is that He carried our sorrows. What was the nature of the punishment, or the, the nature of the suffering rather, that we were to experience because of our sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, by rights, the Lord should have caused us to bear our own griefs. And to carry our own sorrows. We ought to have been stricken, smitten, and afflicted. We ought to have been pierced for our own transgressions. We ought to have been crushed for our own iniquities. Upon ourselves ought to have been the chastisement that we deserved. We ought to have been wounded. But the Lord has laid on Him that which by rights He could have. And justice demands that apart from a substitute, He should have laid on us. But the Gospel is that the Lord has laid on His servant the iniquity of us all. The good news published in chapter 52 and verse 7. The peace published in verse 7 of chapter 52. The salvation published in chapter 52 and verse 7 is this. The servant of God In whom for so many there is no beauty, no form, no majesty. Who has been marred beyond human semblance. That servant has worked a salvation from sin. That servant has borne the punishment that we deserved. Though he was the spotless lamb. We are clothed then in His wool without blemish. The iniquity of us all has been laid upon Him. And so now peace. And so now salvation. And so now 
believer in this gospel. Beauty, form, majesty. This is why Good Friday is good. Not because an innocent person simply suffered. But because the innocent servant of God suffered for us. As the arm of the Lord. When the Lord bared His arm, it looked like His servant hanging on a cross at Calvary. Bearing the punishment that all we who like sheep and have gone astray deserved. That's what it looked like when the Lord bared His arm. In one sense, no beauty, no form, no majesty. Nothing impressive about that. Nothing to cater to our unregenerate desires for self-esteem, for money, for comfort, for whatever. But for the sin-ridden sinner who needs to be free and knows it, oh, beauty, form, majesty, The arm of the Lord. We look on the cross and we do, by faith, see power there. The power of God at work for our salvation. Needless to say, it wouldn't be good if Jesus stayed dead. We would have a dead Savior who still apparently hasn't exhausted the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And we'd still be bearing it. And what hope would we have that He should ever finish with it? Maybe He will, maybe He won't. We might wonder. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose. Which showed that He had paid it all, as we so often say. He didn't stay dead because death could no longer have any claim upon him. He rose. And the transition at the beginning of verse 10 hints at that. Look at verse 8. He was cut off from the land of the living. The Lord's servant died. Verse 9. They made his grave. But now look at verse 10. Yet. Yet, he was cut off from the land of the living. They made his grave. Yet, Sunday is coming. Jesus has exhausted the punishment that we deserve because of our sins. And after accomplishing, finishing his work of atonement there on the cross, he rose. And I'm going to hold the rest of that for Sunday.